Welcome to episode three of the Zachtronics podcast, where we go behind the scenes and explore how indie games are made. I'm Zach Barth from Zachtronics, and my guest today is Tim Saxon from Final Form Games. You'll probably know them as the creators of Jamestown, but we're going to learn a lot more. How's it going? Good, good. Cool. You ready to dig in? I hope so. All right. So my first question for you is, what do you do? Uh, wow. I'm sure that's always the most funny question to ask an indie game developer because I do so many things. Exactly. Um, so what do you actually? How big is your team? Uh, currently two people. Okay. When we made uh, Jamestown. We were three. Uh, the third person on our team, Hal. So it's me and my brother, um, and then our friend Hal, who went on to try to become uh, actually a, a professor uh, in uh, higher education, and is doing a bunch of other interesting uh, pursuits right now. So now it's just me and my brother working on our next game. Cool. And what do you do of the two of you? What 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 are your your roles? It's easiest to find, actually, in terms of my brother. Uh, Mike does the art. Okay. And I don't. And that is one of the uh, uh, few just cut-and-dry distinctions between the two of us. Uh, in addition to that, I wrote our uh, game engine, uh, which is something that Mike does not do. Beyond that, we overlap a fair bit. I do much more of the gameplay code, uh, but he occasionally goes in and integrates uh, sound effects, particle systems, and things like that into the gameplay uh, just so that uh, he can have the control he needs to make things look exactly right. Cool. Does he have any programming skills? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't have a degree or anything, but he's been working in the industry for, I'm going to guess here, 12-ish years. I'm not sure exactly. Um, 13, I guess now. So, like, technical art. He's very much technical art. He came ah. in the, the classic technical art route, which is started as an animator, and then did motion capture, and from that point on, just moved very much into the technical art direction. His, you know, he mostly does for us, uh, really, actually, classical painting. Uh, all the all the levels for Jamestown are hand painted, uh, the enemies as well. Uh, but he's able to do things like when we did our most recent Jamestown Plus for PS4, the bosses were actually integrate implemented using uh, After Effects. Oh, okay. Where we we're able to um, build these little. Uh, paper doll rigs with uh, smooth binding and pins to animate uh, enormous spiders, spider moth enemies and things like that. Uh, and that was extremely technical, but um, all the curve manipulation involved in animation is something that he's very comfortable with. So we're able to do that kind of work, I think, better than most small teams. Cool. We should come back to the After Effects thing, because that's an interesting pipeline. Yeah, it's a cool. 2D animation. So um, so you uh, so you do a lot of the, the programming, then. You do the hard programming. Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. It's really interesting. I do. Uh, I write engine code, I think, largely as a I don't know, labor of love. I, I think I got into game development just because I wanted to build systems and see them work. Mm -hmm. And for me... Um, at least when I was younger, I, I really, I, I only got the full satisfaction if I could go all the way down uh, the rabbit hole to um, the lowest possible level. So I've, I've written compilers for programming languages, and that was very gratifying. I've dabbled in operating system modules, and I really like to go very low level. Mm -hmm. uh, I think assembly is really interesting and uh, fun. I have to pull myself away from that. Yeah. In order to be uh, pragmatic. To get things done. Yeah, game programmer. So yeah. um, I feel like the level I'm operating at at this point actually is fairly high level. Um, 
I got most of that out of the way, and the good news about game engines is they're reusable. Yes. So I haven't had to go reinvent those wheels, nor do I have much interest in doing so anymore. Cool. So what's your background? Uh, on what level? Uh, just how you got into programming. Um, did you go to college for programming? Did you self-taught? Yeah, well, actually, it's an interesting story. I I remember, actually, I went on a camping trip with my dad, and we were on the um, drive home uh, when I was in fifth grade or fourth grade, maybe, fourth grade. And we were on, listening to the radio, and there was this guy talking about how he made video games. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, wow, you can make video games? And my dad was like, yeah, yeah, you can. I was like, <laughs> how do you do it? It turns out he has he wrote his dissertation on education and technology in education. Oh, wow. Uh, and so he's been, he, he like knew how to program in Logo. And okay. He to, actually, to me, when I was in, I think, first grade? second grade before I could really read properly. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was uh, something he wanted to get started as soon as possible uh, with us. So he kind of got us in the door and encouraged us to um, learn how computers worked and how to program. And so I, I started uh, reading Byte Magazine, which was actually fairly old at the time. I'm not that old. <laughs> but they used to have these little uh, things in the back where you could see a, a code listing, which uh-huh. was just an entire program that was just dense code with no new lines, just one-line programs. And some of them were games. And that was so like I, a, the it, selling point for the magazine, is that it comes it with software. It was the best part. You get software with it, yeah. So, so I would uh, download that uh, by way of typing it into a, <laughs> uh, a prompt. And then uh, I would just explore how it worked, try to tinker with it, expand it from one line into maybe like, 50 and then see what the line really did and just deconstruct how the software worked. And I, I met I met a, a person when I was in fifth grade, when I went to middle school, who was also really into programming, like a complete prodigy genius programmer who loved video games and used to make video games on every platform he could get his hands on, uh, you know, little calculators and mm-hmm. all kind of weird devices he would find that were sort of proto- <laughs> anything programmable, handled. anything. Yeah, anything he could program, he would get in there. Um, I, I went to his house, actually, when I was uh, younger, and he lived in, like, a tiny one-bedroom apartment, and all he owned was a desk and a computer and a mattress. Wow. Like, it was amazing, and it was, I guess, his uncle gave him um, gave him the computer and taught him how to program in C, and he would make the most incredible programs, you know, parallax scrolling starscapes with little ships that flew around. So, anyway... I was so impressed, and we hung out a lot, and he taught me how to program, and we wrote all kinds of software together, and uh, remained friends until uh, I moved off to moved overseas when I was in seventh grade, so a couple years, mm-hmm. and I actually didn't get back in touch with him until college, mm-hmm. where I decided uh, I was taking actually a music degree, and I decided I would dabble in computer science, so I took in my sophomore year a uh, computer science class. Uh, intro to computer science for people who might actually pursue it. And it was really weird. I went online and I found this uh, guy, Chris J. Hampton, who does uh, sort of tracker music, mods, S3M stuff. Okay. And he would compete in these contests. And I was very into music at this time, especially digital music. And he would enter these contests where they'd have 30 minutes to write a piece of music, like a five-minute piece of music. Oh, wow. Minutes. And they'd go on IRC, and they'd get the samples they were allowed to use. And then they would uh, write their piece and submit it to IRC by the deadline, and then they'd judge it. And he always won. 
every time. <laughs> he was like the, this genius composer. And I went to his website, went to his gallery of pictures that he had on it, and it turns out he, go, he was really into the demo scene. So he would go to this, these big get-togethers where people would, uh, you know, I don't, you know about the demo scene? Oh, I yeah, definitely, yeah. Okay, you can explain so it really quickly for people who don't. Okay, so the demo scene basically is people write really low-level pieces of software, often in assembly, that perform impossible feats uh, by way of clever algorithms, uh, and they create these, you know, audio-visual experiences that aren't games, they're not really interactive necessarily, but they, they are meant to wow. Yeah, and they're often for, like, old computers or, like, really trying to make the programs really small. 64K yeah. uh, is a classic um, format. Uh, so they're these kind of, you know, technical feats, but they have artistic value. I'd say, actually, they're probably the closest thing I've seen to software that's art. Oh, yeah. Just where the software is the art. That where the software, that the code yeah. is art. Um, on sort of every level all the way up to the execution of it, down to how it's written. Um, anyway, so he would do this. Uh, it's worth, as a quick side note, when I actually, after I moved away in seventh grade, I, I met another guy whose name was Kyle, who was a, a Mac programmer, and he uh, taught me how to program as well. Uh, we used to make marathon mods together, and <laughs> we actually made our own little game over uh, uh, internet chat with a bunch of other people from all over the world uh, when I was, I guess, 13. And so then we um, we made this you know multiplayer tank game with analog look. It was really fun. He did almost all the work, uh, <laughs> but he taught me how linked lists work and stuff like that. Anyway, so I'm at this guy uh, Chris J. Hampton's uh, website, looking at the gallery of a, a time he went to San Diego and uh, was at a demo con, and I see this picture as I'm scrolling down. I'm like, wow, that looks exactly like. Kyle, the guy I just mentioned, uh, who I actually met in Portugal, and and he's shaking hands with a guy who looks just like Jim, <laughs> uh, who's my friend from from uh, from Princeton when I was in like fifth grade, and it's it's them, it's their names <laughs> underneath, it. uh, and they had no idea that they both knew me from oh my god Princeton, New Jersey, and and Lisbon, Portugal. They both wow uh, met each other, and actually Kyle ended up writing an article about having met him in Mac Addict magazine. Because wow. he's, I guess, the only wow. Mac developer who was at this DemoCon. Anyway, because I'm good at finding things on the Internet, uh, I actually managed to track uh, Jim down. I had extra information about, you know, maybe he was in San Diego, things like that. Uh, and I got in touch with him, and he actually mentored me through my college <laughs> over the Internet. He would wow. send emails and chats, and he taught me how to C do C++. Uh, worked me through all of my technical issues and actually made me into the programmer that I am. Interesting fact, he then went on to write Frog Fractions, if you've played that. What? No way. Yes. Yeah. He's oh, a, man. One of my best friends, and uh, I'm really happy that he made a game <laughs> that I actually know about. So anyway, there's my story. Oh, that's great. Wow. Okay. So you went to college, but did you end up getting a degree in computer science? I did. I or is it sort of just an accident of being friends with Jim? <laughs> pretty much. He got me really into it, and I felt so empowered like I never had before um, with a fully formed brain uh, <laughs> and uh, an incredible resource of a, a friend who was willing to drag me through the, the, the trenches of um, uh, you know pointers and link lists and things that were very difficult for me to get my head around, recursion. But yeah, uh, I actually took three and a half years of music. Mm -hmm. And I also uh, took an enormous number of computer science classes to catch up uh, with the intention of doing a double major. And I went to the uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, 
and did a workshop with David Cope, who is sort of the foremost um, researcher in algorithmic computer music, where you write software that writes yeah. math. And I wrote a piece of software while I was there that does, um, it, it essentially uses genetic algorithms to create uh, Bach chorales or uh, Fuchsian counterpoint, just the four parts uh, with a bunch of rules for where dissonance and consonance are permitted, allowed, etc. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I wrote a thesis on that when oh, I got wow. back. And they uh, rejected it in the music department because it was too computery and they weren't able to uh, <laughs> sort of decipher what really it was all about. Um, so I ended up just getting a computer science major instead. Oh, uh, wow. Same thesis, actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you do the music for your games? Because I know for Jamestown you didn't, right? No, no. I, um, I know enough about music to know that I shouldn't be writing it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I understand. Interesting. Yeah, I, I met an extremely talented composer. It's one actually one of the big problems about being uh, really into music uh-huh. is I don't know. I'm as I'm not a professional composer, I can't say this for certain, but I suspect most people who do compose music are surrounded by people who are better than them. Interesting. It feels sort of statistically. <laughs> implicit. Yeah. I like, guess if you know enough people, you'll know somebody who's way better than you. Exactly. It doesn't um, take that many to yeah saturate the groups. Exactly. So so I kind of um I kind of found that I wasn't really uh, able to operate close to the level I wanted to in realizing the visions for my games. I would be hampering them. I knew tons of excellent composers who could do so much better job than me. Yeah. Who devoted their lives to this. So um, I actually ended up working with Francisco Cerda who did the music for Jamestown, and hopefully for all the games I make for the rest of my life. Uh, he's an absolute genius. I don't remember. Did you get to meet him at any point? I didn't. I've heard he his is, music. So he is an absolute genius. It's really surprising. He, he's from Chile, and actually when he was 13, he taught himself to program in QBasic okay. to make a shoot-em-up game so he could write a soundtrack for it. <laughs> and I played the game at PAX a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. It is incredible. Wow. It has bosses that like break into three pieces and fly around. And he wrote this in like QBasic in 91 or something. Um, wow. So he's amazing, really loves video games deeply. And uh, so he's, I think, sort of the perfect candidate for writing music for our, our shoot 'em up game. And he's also very technical, so he can do multi track audio. Uh, oh, that's good, yeah. Gapless sequenced audio using authentic instruments and things that are really quite difficult to do. Wow. Play. I feel like that's an important part of being able to work on indie games is having everybody be a little technical. Like that's, that's definitely a trend I'm starting to see is that, yeah, you know, you no, might not I, do everything, but it really benefits everybody to be a little bit technical. Yeah, I think that I, I've always felt this way, actually, not just in indie games. Um, I feel like it is an inefficient way of doing work to bring on uh, an employee who approaches everything without an understanding of what's going on inside. It would be like if you hired someone to design a bridge technically and a different person to design a bridge aesthetically. Uh, <laughs> it's extremely inefficient. The bridge has to work. Yeah. If you know the constraints going in, then you can just do it well the first time. I think that is actually how some buildings get built. <laughs> I know it's how they get built. It's how many games get built. And yeah, this, interesting. Yeah, when I was at Planet Moon Studios, uh, we had this... Uh, very talented concept artist who designed a uh, an enemy for one of the Drawn to Life games called um, it was Aurora Furry Alice, and it was this big cat, and it had like a rainbow behind it. It looked awesome. It was super cool. And 
the character was was designed out and then modeled and then rigged and then animated and then put into the game. Uh, at which point it, see, it it was clear it was absolutely no fun and all the ideas for what was <laughs> going to work completely fell on their face and it ended up being kind of a dud of a a dud of an enemy and for me that was sort of a, a a learning moment where I realized that the more you pipeline the production of assets and features for video games into the hands of specialists who only see their part. Uh, the more you get sort of this game of telephone that produces yeah. subpar assets and ultimately, in aggregate, a subpar game. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, so really quickly, because I want to get onto some technical stuff, but how did you actually go, how did you get into indie games? Like, what's the, the, the span between leaving college and where you are now? Uh, so uh, my brother actually is two years older than me. He got a job uh, working on the Army game, the uh, sort of military sim Counter-Strike-like game. Okay. Uh, in 2002, and then in 2004, when I graduated, I ended up going to work there. He actually had left at that point in time, but I got a job there, and uh, worked there for maybe 18 months, something like that, something pretty short. It, it really did not align with me philosophically, Yeah. and uh, I felt that I would do better working on games more like what I had dreamed it would be like. So I left the uh, Department of Defense game, and went to work at Planet Moon Studios, which was the very opposite of that. They're the makers of, um, uh, well, they used to be shiny, so it's, it's all the people who worked on uh, Earthworm Jim and uh, MDK. Oh, okay. And those games, uh, and uh, Armed and Dangerous and Citizen Kabuto more recently. So I went there, and actually I really didn't enjoy the games that we made there. I'm not particularly proud of pretty much... What did you work on there? Uh, like seven or eight games. Oh, uh, wow, okay. Smarty Pants for the Wii, Drawn to Life uh, for the Wii, uh, Afterburner for the PSP. As a programmer? As a, as a programmer, I was lead on the Drawn to Life games for... Okay. Not the Drawn to Life, excuse me, I'm sorry. No, no, no. The uh, Brain Quest games for the uh, Nintendo DS. Okay. We made two of those. Actually, though, after being lead on that project, uh, the iPhone came out, and uh, I oh. think... <laughs> Uh, I was the most versatile programmer we had. I'd been a lead. I'd been a uh, senior programmer, gameplay programmer, and tools programmer over the course of my time there. So when the iPhone came out, they decided to do sort of an experiment, and they just gave me four months to make a game on iPhone. And, you know, access to an artist and a technical artist uh, and a sound music guy. Uh, for that time, I think I had two weeks of each other person's time to just do this experiment. Mm-hmm. And uh, we pulled it off and made a game that turned a profit. What was the game? It was called Booty Blocks. It's no longer available because the company uh, collapsed uh, about two years after I left, uh, due to no fault actually of their own. And uh, they had they don't have it on the store anymore because it, I guess they have to update it to work with the new. Yep. Game. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, it was a cool game actually. Really, some science fiction technology in there for how the physics works. Um, but uh, yeah, so I did that. I had grown disappointed with the company uh, because they had decided to institute one of the anything you do or think of belongs to us policy. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so uh, I and over the course of a couple of years, like seven of the senior programmers left. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was particularly empowered by having made this iPhone game and realizing that, you know, I think I can do this. Yeah. And that's a lot of leeway to be given in like yeah. a studio. Oh, they were wonderful. I mean, the studio, God, the people there were great. And um, the chief operating op- officer there, uh, Aaron Loeb, was fantastic. He, um, 
he, he, he pulled me aside one day because I, I was perhaps a little too vocal about my dissatisfaction with some of the decisions that we were making in the company. And he pulled me aside one day and he explained to me this idea um, that I've, I've mentioned a few times in the past that, that there are these uh, good and bad decisions and then there are just tragic decisions. He's a playwright and so he thinks about, <laughs> you know, the name. Please explain, yeah. Um, and he was saying that, that, you know, a good decision and a bad decision are um, only make sense in the context of having the choice between one and the other. When the only choices you have are bad ones, they cease to be bad decisions. They're tragic decisions. And you have oh, to make a bad decision. Uh, you have to make the tragic decision. It leads to a bad outcome. Everyone knows that, but it's the only decision you have on the table, which is very much how tragedies work uh, classically in literature as well. Wow. And uh, I think he was getting at uh, the reality of, of Planet Moon at that point, which was that um, they were forced to make a series of tragic decisions because of how things had gone previously on previous projects and how yeah. things went there. But anyway, I moved on, and actually everyone else has done pretty well. Uh, so it's uh, it turned out all right. But the best thing for me was getting to start my own company. So I moved out east with Hal uh, and my brother, and we all started a studio in Philly. And it's called Final Form Games. It is. Cool. Okay. Um, and then you guys made Jamestown, mm-hmm. uh, which is really quick description for anybody who hasn't played it. Yes. Uh, the Elevator Pitch. It is a um, uh, four-player cooperative top-down shooter that is set in 1600s British colonial Mars, uh, where you <laughs> play as a bunch of historical figures battling the Martians uh, and really the Spanish Martian Alliance to win over the new world for uh, England. Uh, so one of my favorite things about this game is that it's, at least maybe you can correct me if you don't agree, it's secretly an educational game about uh, how yes, to play yeah. shoot 'em ups Absolutely. We called it a, sh- a shoot 'em up university. <laughs> that was one of our little code names for it. Oh, cool. Uh, I didn't know it was that deliberate, actually. Oh, absolutely, yes. It was absolutely deliberate. Um, so explain we, that. Well, we made the game initially because, I mean, it's a really long story I'm going to skip, but uh, essentially I ended up getting really into shoot-em-up games out of nowhere. And I loved playing them, but no one I knew wanted to play them with me. I couldn't get them to play them because they were too hard, and we couldn't play them co-op because they had terrible co-op modes. They were, they were simultaneous play, not cooperative play. And I was annoyed because I knew how much fun it was. I was having a lot of fun. And so I did a deep analysis of what was flawed in the model. And I came to the conclusion that the reason shoot-em-up games are not popular is because they came from the arcade model of needing to extract quarters from people. Their whole goal was to extract quarters. They were not sold up front uh, for people to buy. And as such, they needed to cater to all difficulty levels in a single play session. If you've never played before, you have to play enough that you have some fun, but you can't be able to get very far. Otherwise, once you're good at the game, you'll breeze through it on a quarter, and then you won't be paying much per unit time to play the game. And so what they wanted to do is to make the difficulty ramp up very quickly, as opposed to creating an experience where you're able to gain skill in a way that's natural, and you don't have to bash up against a brick wall, but you're able to have a nice, smooth learning curve the whole way through the experience. And when you're done with the game... You say, wow, I've mastered this, and I'm much better than I used to be. So we identified that uh, weakness in all extant shoot-em-up games. We played every multiplayer mode we could get our hands on. Got an old Dreamcast and a Sega Saturn emulator and a bunch of old games and arcade games and played everything. And just determined that it has never been done well, uh, four-player cooperative in a shoot-em-up. 
And by our standards, never been done well in a two-player either. Wow. So uh, it was that absence of a uh, good product along those axes that led to us wanting to make Jamestown. And I think it, I think it worked definitely. I, the the wall you're talking about, like the, the I actually haven't played nearly as many as you, but I tried playing Ikaruga. Oh yeah. And the first level totally doable. The second level impossible. Yep. That's and exactly. it's just not fun. It's yeah. And and, you, and Jamestown does not have that problem. Yeah. So, how, so what quickly? What mechanics in Jamestown uh, promote this sort of educational aspect and make it uh, tractable to new players? So uh, there's a few. Um, was quite a few. So I'll start with the most important one that almost no one realizes, which is uh, you can play each level piecemeal, period. You, if, you, if you start the game, you can play the first level. If you beat the first level, you can play the second one. You can play them independently. You don't have to play them in a row. And I know that seems really obvious for most genres of game, but shoot 'em ups have like never done that. Oh, that's true. They always, they always go immediately onto the next level. Right. And you have to go back through the early ones. You have to to get to a later level. Right. The closest game that's, that's come to what we do, which was a big inspiration for us, is called Death Smiles. It came out for the Xbox uh, and in arcades by Cave, one of the great shoot 'em up developers. And the way they did it was they have six levels, and you pick one of the first three, and then you pick one of the next, the, the other three, and you zigzag back and forth between those two pools of three until you've played all of them. Interesting. And, the, and you, you pick a difficulty level per level. So you pick easy, medium, or hard for each level as you pick it. That's definitely more confusing than what you guys did. It is. <laughs> um, and they have a whole exhaustion system where, like, once you've played two easy levels, you can't play easy anymore. Mm. So you can play hard on the first level, and then you can save your easy for the final level. It's really complicated. Yeah. And um, it's sort of, I don't know, it's, it's overly complex for, for what's needed. Uh, yeah. It was made, again, to work in arcades. So what we did was really just very straightforward. We just said, look, when you've unlocked a level, you can play it all you want. You can play it on any of the difficulty levels at any point. Uh, so we did that, and that seems like such an obvious step, but I, I have to tell you there is no other game that does that. Yeah, no, I believe it. Or like a singularity, which is yeah. There, there's definitely a trend in, in games, I think, to sort of obsessively uh, recreate old game experiences. Yeah, the cargo Just, cult design. Yeah, exactly. You know, we we um we've learned uh, the hard way that when you when you shirk tradition, uh, you often step into really difficult design problems that everyone else has sidestepped by not uh, by by adhering to tradition. Can and you I give an example? come from strong motivations that everyone ran to the same walls and the only games that ever came out were the ones that stuck by the formula the the formula that that um reflected a truth about what is and isn't possible interesting however as time passes as the market shifts uh you have to always be diligent about whether this is still true or whether this truth has, has changed i think in the case of arcades the games that didn't do it this way those companies went out of business. That's mm. my best guess. But before, like, anything supplanted arcades. Yeah, and once we had alternatives to arcades, there's this slow shift away from what we had done before. Um, I think that that's happening right now in television and movies, where movies are getting longer, television shows are getting shorter, uh, to where they're, you know, 13 episodes or 8-episode miniseries like Downton Abbey. Yeah, and we're we're getting to this sort of optimum point now that the format for the delivery of of uh, stories has changed. 
Yeah, that's true. Now that you can watch any episode you want at any time, you can do things that would not have worked on yeah. broadcast television. Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't have done it. And we still do things kind of the broadcast television way, but most of it's unnecessary except for the elaborate mechanism and machine built around uh, these delivery mechanisms. Uh, Interesting. You know, theaters and, uh, and cable networks. But we have Netflix, and it's completely different. <laughs> the whole market's different. Um, so anyway, the other me- mechanisms we use in um, Jamestown to make the difficulty easier for beginners and smoother is a combination of having uh, five difficulty levels, of which only the third one would ever be considered uh, easy mode on another shoot 'em up. So that is a uh, that's a big difference. We've just added two easier easy modes, mm. uh, which we've called normal and difficult, and we didn't name them that just to disguise the fact that they're easy so that you don't feel, you know, like you, you're being talked down to. It's actually because the difficulty levels should reflect what they, what the experience will be for the average person. Yeah. So you basically recalibrated for right. everybody. Yeah. Yep. And so instead of calibrating for the hardcore shoot 'em up crowd, we just knew, look, they always play on the hardest difficulty they can. They're, they're going to figure this out in seconds, and they always do. <laughs> they're going to be able to play the high difficulty levels, which are very hard, uh, and they're going to have a great time. But the but the new players are not going to hit that wall. They're going to feel the success of mastering smaller problems. They're going to eventually solve the, or I guess define the mental pathways and muscle memory to perform those tasks without thinking. And then they're going to move to a higher difficulty and start to develop the next layer of skills on top of the foundation of what they did on the lower difficulties. Uh, and that works really well. Yeah. And, and so one of the other things you have, right, is where, um, I think how to describe it, where you have to go to a newer, a, a higher, harder difficulty level in order to continue progressing through the set of levels. Yes, we did do that. We get a lot of flack about that from some players, but the majority of people seem to like it. Yeah, I... I thought I think I thought the same thing. I, when I played through, I definitely felt like that was sort of pushing on me, but I absolutely rose to the the difficulty and got better because of it. Yeah, exactly. I think that um, it's frustrating for people to be told that they need to step out of their comfort zone. Yeah, and we tried a lot of things. Um, and what we determined is that the only thing people would be willing to work harder for is more story and more variety. Yes. And so we There's had a reward. gameplay. We had to gate levels. There was nothing yes. else that would motivate. And we also didn't want to push people into a position where they had to play a difficulty they weren't prepared for. So what we ended up doing was the first and second and third difficulty levels, or third levels, excuse me, on the easiest difficulty that is normal. Level one is easier than level two is easier than level three. But when you go to difficult, the second difficulty level, and you go back to the first level, it's actually easier to play level one on difficult than it is to play level three on normal. And it's extremely intentional. Uh, What we wanted to do was to make it so that the moment when someone opts into a higher difficulty, we show them that they can do it, that this this is within their grasp, this is not going to be an impossible feat. Uh, and so they experience, just like the first time they play, success upon opting into a higher difficulty. How do you do that? How do you ensure that they're successful when they take the harder difficulty? Uh, well, part, partly it's just we tested, I think we did over 120 play tests of the game with four people. Mm-hmm. Um, so hundreds and hundreds of testers and watching where they died, what killed them, 
what kinds of patterns were guaranteed kills. We adjusted the number of enemies on screen, the number of lives you have, uh, and we basically measured it in terms of uh, fault tolerance. How fault tolerant is the level and what's the average number of uh, faults that the player will uh, commit within a, a level, statistically. Interesting. So you really went the numbers approach for kind of calibrating the difficulty of the game. Uh, for the most part, yeah. I mean, we didn't actually use hard metrics. We did an intuitive model for what we observed. Okay. But it was based on the same principle, which is yeah. we would look at the number of uh, of lives consumed. We would uh, observe and note down any trends we noticed, like that pattern has killed this this player every single time it's happened, and that it accounted for four out of their nine deaths. If that pattern were less dangerous, we could get it down to where it was two deaths, that gives them two more errors they can make mm. somewhere else in the uh, level. Interesting. Until eventually you've put it in a, a sweet spot. We also identified certain types of patterns that no matter what are just really dangerous. Like just players always fall for this until they practice them. And we try to reserve those for legendary and above. So a lot of the enemies don't use those attacks or those enemies don't show up until you get to the higher difficulties. Interesting. Yeah. How did you find so many playtesters? Um, That's a lot of playtesters. <laughs> uh, well, it, it, I have to give credit here to Hal for the most part. Uh, he uh, was teaching at the time when we developed Jamestown, and he had a lot of students. <laughs> and they wanted to get into games. And so wow. Said, well, if you want what was to like, he teaching? learn how to run a playtest, we'll do a playtest, and then we'll explain our methodology as we go and when we're done. What was he teaching? Uh, game design. Okay. Oh, well, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. It was a perfect uh, thing for the students. It was great for us. Uh, we met a bunch of people. Actually, one of his uh, one of his students ended up working with us on Jamestown Plus uh, to help port it to PS4. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, Jamestown Plus? So I actually hadn't heard of Jamestown Plus until you mentioned it in the email leading up to this. Uh, what is Jamestown Plus, and how did that come about? Well, um, when Jamestown came out, uh, it was a critical hit. And yes. it was a marginal success financially. <laughs> marginal? Commercial success was not as uh, abundant as critical success. Yeah, yeah. Which I have to attribute to the fact that it's a shoot-em-up game that looks like a shoot-em-up game. But it hears yes. visual conventions. It, 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 is a perfect, it passes perfectly for a shoot-em-up. And people know what that means, which is yeah. I'm not going to get my money's worth. Yep. Uh, and so people shied away from it, which I don't blame them for. Um, that's the problem with being that, that uh, first penguin. But uh, it was good enough to keep us going for a few years. And uh, we made a DLC pack for it, did some Humble Bundles and so forth. But we had some really great features that never made it in the game. Like and what? our biggest you know, disappointment with the game was it was too short. It was only five levels. And we wanted to make seven. Mm. So uh, we had always wanted to have it come out on a, on a console. One of the mm -hmm. things that the game did really well was it created the console experience on the PC out of necessity at the time uh, because we had no means of possibly getting onto one of the major consoles except, you know, the Wii, and that was clearly yeah. not a strong uh, market decision uh, to join that platform at that time. Is it on the Wii? No, uh, we decided not to do that. It was very oh, okay. expensive. There was a lot of insurance and testing and certification costs. Uh, they wouldn't spot us a, a test kit. Or dev oh, wow. kit, uh, which I don't blame them for. I mean, it was a different culture back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's different from it, the way it is now. Yeah. It is very different, yeah. I think uh, the Microsoft mantra of developers, 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 <laughs> uh, really, Sony has embraced that. 
Yes, uh, yeah. And that's wonderful. So uh, when they did, we finally were able to put it onto a console, uh, and we were very excited about that. So we put about a year and two months into adding two new levels, making uh, four new ships, which uh, have two different special weapons and six different shot types apiece that you can mix and match. Oh, wow. Uh, we went, went back and revised the levels where we thought they were just not quite right. The second level was too long. The boss did some cheap shots and had some bad algorithms in it, which, while not random, felt random. Um, and we didn't really like how that played out. And so, yeah, we just did a whole pass over the game, redid the whole UI to be, instead of a mouse-based UI, be more of the sort of uh, topological grid of uh, nodes and graphs uh, where you can... Uh, uh, nodes and edges in a graph where you can just um, press right or left, pop between yep. elements on the screen and things like that. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do... Uh, much better. We added 5.1 surround sound to it. Oh, cool. Okay. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to do a scattershot of questions. We've got like 20 minutes left, and I just want to dig deep into some of these things we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what engine do you guys use for the game? I mean, it sounds like you wrote one yourself. What's yeah. it written in? What can you tell me about it? So uh, it's written in C++. It's called Flint, and uh, it uh, is C++ with a Lua extension on it, and then all the pipeline and, and build process are done in uh, Python. Okay. Do you Do you code the gameplay in C++? Um, no, we, we code almost all the gameplay in Lua. Uh, it's a component-based architecture of my own uh, uh, contrivance, which uh, essentially you build the atomic pieces of, a, of an object in a game, and then you're responsible for stitching it together yourself. Um, so there's no such thing as an update function. There's no scene graph. Uh, instead, you're able to create, you know, tick components, which are um, just thing. They're just uh, function functors that get called every frame, mm-hmm. and you can give them a priority, and they get sorted every frame, and then run through an order, uh, which makes them sort of an atomic concept of a heartbeat or a tick object that is called every frame. Uh, if you want to build a scene graph or uh, some kind of a hierarchy, you're welcome to do so and then assign priorities accordingly. Interesting. But that's uh, that's a higher level abstraction that's built on top of it. And the whole engine is architected that way. The physics, the input, everything is constructed out of these worlds, which are just these context-containing components. And then they don't really know about each other except that they have very specific functor connections between each other. So that, you know, there's a... When the physics moves, it has a, a mover functor, which it calls, which updates the position of something it, through a generic interface. And that could be a uh, graphics object. It could be just a function that needs to change some state. Uh, it could move seven things, whatever you want. Uh, so the whole ar- engine's architected that way, where the inner loop of computation, the physics, the uh, calling, the iterating through all the different tick functions, traversing those graphs, everything is done in C++. But because it's all fixed function, it's extremely tight loops. Even though that's the bulk of the actual frame's computation, all of it's done in C++, but doesn't require any C++ to be written to write essentially any game. So Interesting. the Lua has very little execution time. All it is doing is stitching together C++ objects to other C++ objects and occasionally inserting a bit of Lua logic. But for the most part, it's, it, it is actually executing in C++. You take a C++ physics object and a C++ graphics component, connect them with a, a C++ mover, and you're done. There's no actual Lua code required there except the initial setup to tie them together. Interesting. Do you feel that you benefit from having this engine? That like it, it allows you to quickly develop and quickly like change the game? Yeah. 
definitely. Um, it's very painful for me to use other engines. Interesting. Um, especially, I mean, I've spent so long thinking about these problems, I find it hard to talk with some people about this subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will give an effort. Uh, I've basically reduced the concept of video games down to essentially state machines. Like, mm-hmm. state machines are often an object someone makes, but I think that essentially a game is a state machine that is composed of other state machines all the way down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the most... Uh, intuitive way to express a game is a series of hierarchical state machines. However, most languages are absolute trash at expressing state machines. Yeah. Uh, and I find that to be one of the most frustrating elements of writing any video game, is you have to witness some butchering of the state machine logic, some slice along some strange axis that, like, either it's coroutines, where you have to hand off control, but then you keep your stack, or it's a, a, a case uh, list in a switch statement, in which case you have to hand off your stack, but you get to write all your logic in one place. You don't have to do a specific handoff and trust that someone will pass you the correct data the next time around. So I find that very frustrating. And the, the essence of why that happens, I think, is because people have things like a virtual interface for update or render, and they have to walk down this tree once a tick. Uh-huh. And because they have the tree, they have to walk down the whole tree. They can't stop somewhere halfway down the line and have it make logical sense. By destroying the tree and flattening it into a list, what I'm able to do is to create update functions out of the ether freely. So that if I enter a state, I can just make an update function that gets called every frame that has all the context it could possibly need for that state associated with it when I create the tick function. And when I leave that state, the tick function is annihilated. And that logic ceases to happen. So every state in my engine is actually just a function. And it sets up a bunch of latent behavior with, uh, with essentially a hook that says, and stop doing this when I leave the state. So I am able to express the three pieces of uh, a state node, which are uh, the initialization, uh, latent computation, and cleanup, all in one function right there. Uh, and then part of what I create can also be I can create more state machines in that function and then have them call another function to initialize and maintain their own states. And because that, that sub-state machine is associated with the parent state machine, when we leave a state in the parent state machine, it will destroy the child state machine, which will clean up the child state. And in doing so, I get this sort of watertight expressive space where I don't have to slice everything up weirdly, I just express it directly. And I don't have any other engine I know I can do that in. The closest is Unity, but it really doesn't do that. Yeah, and it's not doesn't sound like it has the same kind of guarantees that that you're able to make. Yeah. So wow. it's you very, should <laughs> very you should sh- share some code. Can you share any like code samples to illustrate this? I would love to, yeah. to link that with this. Yeah, that would that, be fun. That is some dense stuff that you just described. Sorry. Wow. It, it's no, it's okay. I, I've overthought it, but I came up with a solution I liked. Yeah. I'm, it's, I don't it's a, that solution. It drives me crazy. Yeah. I think that's an important thing of, you know, programming reflects, like, it, it's an artifact that reflects something that was going on in someone's head. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing I love talking about with you is that you think about things a lot, uh, but not, like, in a, in a naive way. Like, you very much, you know, drill down to something that's really there. And uh, and that is one hell of a solution to a programming problem. Yeah, it's 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 my favorite my favorite way of making games. Yeah, I just wanted to be able to make games like I dreamed it would be. Where me and my brother are like, wouldn't it be cool if we had this thing and it had this thing in it, and then it did this? And I wanted to be able to write games in a way that felt like that. Yeah, no, so, I totally understand. Yeah.
we we have a thing we use um it's a lot less uh deep than what you just described but uh we use like an option type or like a maybe type because mm -hmm. in, in c sharp which is what the language that we use for all of our games mm -hmm. uh, there's no way to say that a reference to an object will never be null mm -hmm. and so we we basically created our own wrapper to wrap around things and say that hey this is something that might not have a value which means that if you encounter one without this maybe wrapper it definitely has a value and you should never check for null because we just want to crash if it's ever null because that means that oh, somebody fucked up like an implicit and, assertion yeah yeah, exactly. And it's it I, it makes the code much clearer. You know when you have to check for something not having a value. I've worked on like professional programming teams at Microsoft where they're using a language where you just kind of have to check for null because it might be lurking anywhere. And like yeah. that's ridiculous. It's really not like like it really shouldn't be lurking anywhere. And I I could never write another program without this construct that we've created because it's just like it's just unthinkable. I've put and so I, I totally much understand into trying to solve that problem. I, I do have my own solution. It's not as elegant as yours, though. I love yours. Um, I didn't come up with it. That was all Keith. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's a great idea. So compliments to the chef. <laughs> um, I will let him know. Okay, let's see. Let me see uh, other questions that would be really good to cover. So uh, the quintessential question of the Zachronics podcast. Tell me about a time you fucked up and how you survived it. Hmm. Games related, not like in life, I guess. But Yeah. <laughs> no, I have much more of the last. <laughs> but no, uh, let's see. Um. Hmm. Games. Big mistake. God. Um. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it has to be my fault, right? It's got to be my fault for it to be a good answer. Um, uh, perhaps. I'll, I, I'll settle for less. Okay, yeah. I mean, I feel like I haven't made a lot of really cataclysmic mistakes. And I don't mean that just like I'm so great. I mean that there's a survivorship bias. I, I'm still in business. Yeah, exactly. I can only have fucked up so badly. <laughs> um, uh, I made a lot of small mistakes overworking on particular features, but here's a, here's a thing where I really, um, I really encountered some difficulty. I was um, trying to get sound in the game. I really care about sound um, in Jamestown. I was uh, trying to get audio work done. And we had great music, but we needed sound effects. So I talked to an old friend of mine at Planet Moon, uh, Justin Mullins, and... Uh, I asked if he would help me make uh, sound effects for our game. And he said, sure. We were good friends. And so he made a bunch of incredible sound effects for our UI and uh, various parts of the game. We submitted to the Independent Games Festival, and we got an honorable mention for audio. And um, it turns out, in the time since I left Planet Moon, he became a full-time employee and had signed that document saying that anything that he did in his spare time uh, belonged to Planet Moon. Oh, no. He did not tell me this, and I did not ask, and it was a, a major mistake. So um, I told him he needed to he needed to tell Planet Moon what had happened, that I wasn't comfortable just letting it slide. Like, we needed to deal with it. So he talked to his boss, and I ended up having to explain that I wasn't trying to poach their employees. Like, I wasn't <laughs> trying to, like, steal him from my company. Uh-huh. And they finally understood what had happened, and we were able to negotiate something very simple where, you know, I paid him through them. Like, they didn't take a share or anything, but oh, okay. legally they had to, um, because they work for publishers, arrange it this way. Um, but it, it took a lot of stress, and I ended up not having him as a, a sound guy after that for obvious reasons. Just, it, yeah. you know, he was contractually obligated not to. 
So I found another sound uh, guy nearby, and and I uh, offered him a tremendously good rate of a hundred dollars a sound. Oh wow! Yeah. For ten for ten sounds, he was he worked good. on here. He was uh, very well respected, recommended personally, and uh, it took him like four months to make five of the sounds. And I kept you know trying to get this time, and I write these long seven page descriptions of what I wanted with my own little recorded sounds of like kind of like this. And he'd write back okay, and then like. <laughs> never get us back a sound I called him one time I was like look I, you know I understand if this was a mistake uh, I don't I don't want you to have to work on a project you don't want to work on what's going on and he said well you know I have all these other gigs and they pay the bills and I'll be honest like no one's gonna you're not gonna like make more sales of your game if these five sounds are really good or really bad it just doesn't matter and to hear a sound guy tell me that was um, was really disheartening and I, I disagreed with that do you still disagree with that sentiment Absolutely, yeah. I think sound is one of the most important aspects of games. Uh, that's that's just my my own philosophy. But uh, I ended up paying him the thousand dollars for the five sounds uh, and being completely broke. I actually went three hundred three thousand dollars into debt to finish Jamestown, uh, and so we shipped what we had and some sounds I made in Audacity with some filters. <laughs> it turns out that the sound uh, nomination that we got it was the reason we ended up getting onto Steam at all. Interesting. The nomination was sufficient to get Steam's attention, who put us onto Steam. We were in a daily deal, and that's the only reason we still exist. And so that's part of the reason why I believe good sound is really important, uh, is because it's one of the many ways that you can create a, a powerful, compelling experience for your players. And that matters to your players. It matters to people who assess the quality of games in general. It matters to platform holders. It's, a, it's like art. It's like uh, the gameplay, it's a part of the game. Uh, and if you do it poorly, your game will be worse for it. If you do it really well, your game can be a lot better for it. Interesting. So it, That's something not specific to sound, but something we, we talk about a lot here, which is just, you know, of all the things that we could put in a game, which ones are essential? Mm -hmm. You know, is it worth spending twice as much on the art when it's a game that is about programming? Yes, for example, you know, it's 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 a difficult yeah, it's a difficult decision to make because sometimes it seems like, you know, we could actually skimp quite heavily in some of these you know superfluous I guess with air quotes around that yeah you know because people are like we could we could have no art and people would still come for the gameplay mm -hmm. you know versus we could add lots of art and it's not going to bring in that many more people that was something we kind of found with Ironclad Tactics mm -hmm. that. We, we, you know, we invested a lot in the art, thinking that it was going to bring more people. Um, I mean, it's impossible to tell what the game would have been like if it had crappier art, but it didn't bring in the, you know, we didn't bring in as many people from the art of Ironclad Tactics as we did with the programming gameplay of Space Chem. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's a really difficult market to read from the outside, and it's definitely possible to overspend. And I guess maybe that's the... Uh, that's the big takeaway. If you want to know what I learned from that experience with the audio debacle, uh, I learned probably three things. One is uh, I really care about audio. Uh, the second is <laughs> if you find a good audio person, keep them. Yeah. Uh, if, if they're good at what they do and they work well with you, don't assume that just because there's a thousand audio people who are willing to do sound for your game that they're all a commodity and that each one will be just as good as another. Uh, if you find a great artist who's who's excited about your projects and who you work well with, just continue to keep that relationship going. It's worth it. And then uh, the last one is it's really important to be careful when you start working with someone new to 
understand that it can it, it may not work out and you can't hinge everything on a particular individual you've only just started working with interesting that was uh it oh, pax it's like two years ago you gave me a piece of advice which was about um <laughs> <laughs> you know it really matters who you work with mm-hmm. you know and especially when you're on an indie team you know like the if the successful indie teams are successful because all the people there are you know have have the the gift yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all the best at what they do <laughs> exactly and I, I i really you know i really took that to heart i really think it's true is that you do have to be kind of choosy about who you work with yeah. and a lot really a lot hinges on it and it's hard to predict what the outcomes will be but it's it's an important factor it's a hard problem to solve it is needs solving <laughs> yeah yeah too bad you can't solve it in the same way he solved the programming problem. yeah <laughs> exhaustively yeah the only the analytical approach worked yeah uh okay so quick final question what's your favorite tool favorite tool like software tool mine is excel what is yours your my favorite software tool i probably have could, it could be your engine it could be i mean that's my favorite but that's not useful um i'd say actually at present, I'm enamored with uh, Sublime Text. Mm. Uh, I really think it is one of the first times I've used a piece of software that does text editing and thought to myself, wow, this is the future. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I used uh, Visual Studio forever. Uh, I used Notepad++ because it was slightly better, but Sublime Text is just so, you know an order of magnitude better than either of those tools. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. I'd say that's probably my favorite tool right now. Keith swears by it too. It's, uh, it's incredible. A, just just yeah. Control D. Once you learn what Control D does, it is very hard to go back. Is that what opens up the like the text-based menu? No, Control D What's is control what D? selects the next uh, token in the document that is the same as the token you just selected. You can press it again with shift and select say 10 of them and then you can just start typing or pressing to the right or the left to prepend or do anything like that oh wow uh it is for programming one of the most indispensable uh, interesting functions i've ever used is it sort of because i know like the the block like text editing when they, they added that to visual studio that that changed my life it's like that only just a thousand times more useful uh, wow. It can be off. It can be anywhere in the document. If you know every place that you have this, you have to, um, you know, capitalize the first letter and put a dot X after it. You just hold down Shift Control or just give me Control D uh, until it's selected everything, and then you press, you know, to the left Shift. Oh, and right. you just start typing. Yeah, wow. every one of them can be changed simultaneously. Um, it's like Find Replace that's interactive. And you can press control right, it'll move one token to the right. All that kind of stuff works across every one of the selected ent- entries. That's really cool. It's amazing. It's an incredible feature. Okay. Well, we should wrap up. Uh, anything you want to tell people about? Um, Get people pumped for? Things I'm excited about? Oh, like with your upcoming, anything you want to shill? <laughs> um, I think, uh, I, I, I guess I would say, yeah, people should. Uh, if they haven't played Jamestown, check it out on PS4 if they've got one. It's a yeah. really good game. Check it out on PC if you don't. I mean, it's I, I, honestly, it's it's probably my favorite indie game <gasps> I've ever played. Oh my gosh! 
Yeah, I just, I, and the funny thing is, I, I told you this before, I love the story, uh-huh. which you kind of, like, threw in as an afterthought, like, getting, like, the little uh-huh. story segments in, yeah. and, like, I, it's, it's, Mana, it's, it's absolutely, like, my favorite indie game. Oh, man, well, thank you so much. Yeah, because I was so bad at shoot 'em ups and I've never played another one since, because there's none that are at my skill level, but as I, it was, it was a great experience. Well, yeah. I hope that you get a chance at some point to play, uh, Jamestown Plus, it's, uh, yeah, definitely. it's got quite a lot. Uh, new content. Okay. Well, thanks for being on, and uh, I'll talk to you later. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to everybody for listening.